Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to Kinky Boots. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. Hello. Hello, hello. And this week we are watching The Avengers Series 1, Episode 9, Ashes of Roses. No, we're not. We're listening to it. (laughs) Always the pedant, Dr. Exton. This episode was written by Peter Ling and Sheila Ward, and it was one of the live batch of episodes. It was recorded and transmitted on the 4th of March 1961 and broadcast in the ABC Midlands and North and Anglia regions. The episode regrettably is lost. There are no telesnaps and there's only one production still and there's no reconstruction. There is a full script for this. Uh, It does exist in a private collection, and this was used for the Big Finish audio reconstruction, adapted by John Dorney, and that can be found on Volume 2 of their Lost Episodes range. Interestingly, on the production schedule for Saturday the 4th of March, which is when this went out, there's a five-minute slot for Promotion Ampex at 7.55pm, and that's widely believed to be for a trailer to introduce the show to other regions, which will be starting with Hot Snow the following week, while ABC Midlands, North and Anglia will be showing Hunt the Man Down. Now, this episode is unique in the series as it's a carol-forward story. Originally, it was going to be another Carol and David episode, but it was rewritten, possibly due to the actors' workloads, and Dr. Keel, as a result, is barely in it. The original production assistant was Verity Lambert. Well, hey! The episode was originally to have been broadcast eighth in the lineup, uh, but that was moved down to ninth after Diamond Cut Diamond was added to the initial run. Most of the initial schedule changes were down to production delays with the radioactive man. It took a bit longer to adapt than was expected. Dr. Exton, do you have a pricey for us? Well, before we do, I believe that this is the last episode of The Avengers that was tr- transmitted live. You're quite right. Yes, it was. It was the last of the live run. Quick word about alumni, because front and centre, Mark Eden, who played Jacques Perron, was Marco Polo in Marco Polo. He was also a regular in Coronation Street sometime in the 80s or 90s after I'd stopped watching it. He was in An Adventure in Space and Time. His first credited role was in Quatermass and the Pit as the second journalist. He was also in episodes of Out of the Unknown, The Sandbaggers, Spider's Web and The Prisoner. The other Who alumni we have is Edward Dennett. He was Major General Rutledge in The Invasion. He was also in King of the Castle and episodes of Doom Watch and Out of the Unknown. We have Olga Lowe, who was in The Clifton House Mystery, and Gordon Rawlings, who was in The New Avengers, The Bed-Sitting Room. He played a regular in Coronation Street in the 1960s called Charlie Moffat, and he was the narrator of The Adventures of Parsley. Oh, I knew I'd heard the name before. So, again, from Dave Rogers' Ultimate Avengers, we have a synopsis, and it says, 
Mendelssohn, a known artist, has been hired by the Barones to burn down their hairdressing salon for the insurance. Using Carol to gather evidence, Steed discovers that the hairdressers will stop at nothing, including several murders, to achieve their aim. Steed intercepts the Barones as they are about to leave the country, and Jack confesses that the salon is about to go up in flames. Meanwhile, Carol, in the company of Denise, one of the hairdressers' assistants, has reached the same conclusion, and they have driven to the salon to pour cold water on Mendelssohn's fire-raising. The women are saved from being burned alive by the intervention of Steed, who knocks the arsonist cold as he is about to light the fuse on an incendiary device. This is your 2.30 alarm call. Did somebody order a night watchman? Thank goodness for that. Thought I was going to have to read this paper a third time. You want it? Sure. Got me sandwiches, got me flask, cup of coffee and a paper. Should be fine. There you go, then. See you tomorrow. Nighty-night. Right. Let's see what Dick Tracy's up to, then. You forgot something? Alright, we're clear. Got the wood shavings. Scatter them round the body. I'm getting the kerosene. Again, not absolutely descriptive of what happens in the in the audio. And I'd always thought that this was one of the the stories that had almost nothing about it and, and not really any script to work from. No, this was a full script. And I can't put my finger on why this did not grip me. I think part of it is that the two main leads are largely absent. And Carol's whole characterization is is fairly clueless. So for a Carol forward <laughs> episode, it either had to be her blundering her way through a, a fairly simple mystery, which isn't wildly exciting, or suddenly becoming incredibly competent and active, which is completely at odds of what's happened with her before. So I think the problem is pushing Carol into the spotlight when the character just hasn't been written or prepared for anything like that. I mean, the episode starts quite promisingly. There's the whole security guards being knocked out, everything doused in kerosene, woof. And you think, right, well, we've got here, we've got a little bit of a... There's something to investigate immediately within the the opening scene. And then it's, so the, the action shifts massively from a timber yard to a hairdresser's. And there's quite a disjoint there because there's no apparent immediate connection between the two. And the action really drops down a gear. Yeah. So I I was so disappointed with that because it had me. My ears pricked up. I was listening. I was gripped by this. You know, you got the two security guards with the sandwiches and the thermos. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with a hairdressing salon as a backdrop, but it, it just wasn't very gripping. And I think you've nailed it down there that the two leads are absent and Carol's not really beefed up enough to be interesting. So it could be any program. And there are two parallel plots going on in the hairdressers. There's the arson plot, which you'd start off with the lumberyard and it's the reason that Steed is involved. And then suddenly you get a good half of the episode being about the owner's wife getting jealous of the owner and setting traps for the girls that she thinks he's having an affair with. And then all of that gets ignored and you come back to the arson plot 
And it's basically two different plots, neither of which are satisfactorily mm. resolved. Yeah. I mean, notable points in this. We've got uh, 110. He makes another appearance as Steed's boss on the phone. There's not a lot of meat on the bones with 110. We're not really explained what the organisation is, who the boss is, really, to be honest, who Steed is. So it's all quite misty in that respect. There's no actual mystery about what's going on. It's important enough for 110 to get Steed involved, but it's not important enough for Steed to actually be actively involved. But 110's involvement doesn't really make sense. The Barones aren't master criminals or spies or anything like that that um why is steed getting involved in what's basically a a fairly seedy pretty minor crime that an insurance investigator would be picking up none of it really hangs together well the first leg up and i really hate to say this uh, it was only a matter of time nick briggs he pops up as a starring role and uh oh who does he play uh he's right at the beginning he is the owner of the timber yard when he's investigated he's smoking a cigar and having a drink and then can't remember the damn name of the character but it's right at the beginning of the episode and i think he pops up at the end as well but i was sort of drifting away by then morris roffey that's the one Nick Briggs, he has to do his territory marking, doesn't he? There's nothing wrong with him as an actor. The problem is that he's in so many things. He's got a very recognisable voice. And after you've been in every other audio play, there's only so much you can do to disguise your own voice. A and he's got a ring modulator. He, he does the, the best that he possibly can, including props, to disguise his voice. If you've yeah. got a voice that's that recognisable, particularly to the people that are going to be buying this product, it takes you out of it. The one that leaps to mind is Peter Salis as Poirot. You just cannot get away from... Clegg or Wallace when you listen to Peter Salas in anything. I mean, all right, the exception to that is Penley, which he's bloody good at in, in that, but that's pre-all of that. But I mean, comparing Nick Briggs to Peter Salas, I think is a... <laughs> you know what I mean, though. Once you've got somebody's voice in your head, if they play a particular type of character or you know who they are and you wouldn't particularly cast them as that, unfortunately, it takes you out, it draws you out of it. Beryl Reed is a grizzled old ship's captain. Not the best bit of casting, but it's there. No, it she just, was fantastic. She was all right, but, but it wouldn't be your first choice, would it? I, I really enjoyed her in that role. <laughs> um, because she chews the scenery as you know that she's going to. But it's 80s Doctor Who. They were getting people in to chew the scenery. And it's largely because the scenery wasn't great. I mean, on the flip side, we've got Terry Malloy in there, better known to Doctor Who fans as Davros from the 1980s. And uh, he does a passable turn as Monsieur Brerone. Because he's a professional actor. You're a harsh man. He's still Terry Malloy, though. To people like me and you, they do stand out a mile. The only other note that I've got is that when Steed interrogates Denise and he does his whole charming, this is my car, would you like a lift home? Oh, should we go to dinner? Come in. Would you like a brandy? Or, and she, she's doing the flirtatious brandy. Oh, it just smells expensive. And what else can I do for you? And then he just turns on his heel and turns into Mr. Policeman. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that thought that was very odd. Oh, no, the really odd thing is that after he's done the turn on the heel and turned into Mr. Policeman and got all the information, he then becomes Mr. Smarmy 
And she falls for it. And she falls for it. And it just comes across as a bit date rapey. Well, it doesn't make any sense. A, why would he go to all that trouble of taking her out for dinner, etc., etc., if he's just going to grill the fuck out of her like that and completely ruin the mood? I mean, it wasn't done subtly. That bit kind of does make sense because it, it's getting things in place for her to be receptive enough to be knocked off her guard when he changes tack. That kind of makes sense. It's the whole reversion after that and sit down, have another drink, my dear. That's just a bit, you've knocked all the defences away by being a bit of a shit, and now you're just a bit creepy. The Steed's characterisation in this first series is not to my taste. I prefer the uh, the Steed we get in later later episodes. But no, that to me, I just didn't understand why. Maybe, again, maybe it was the performance, but it was such an aggressive tack. He did, as you say, turn on his heel and he just sort of spotlights in the face, where were you on the night of the 15th sort of thing. There's no subtlety about it. And at that point, any rational um, person would have been, right, fuck off, mate, you've gone weird now, I'm out. But she doesn't, and then she she, stops for another drink. She she does try to do, and then she's bullied out of it, which was quite a nice performance. The problem is, after that, it's then the, I've got the upper hand, have a seat, little girl. Yeah. And it might be the, the way it was scripted. Part of it will be the way it was played. It just came across as a bit, oh, no. I'm I'm glad you've pointed that out, because that scene in particular was a bit odd. Yeah, but overall, it's not gripped me, this one. Are we at the stage where we should rate this? I'm regrettably going to give this a two. It started out full of promise, but it was another one of those where I just zoned out. It's nothing to do with the sound design or anything. It's not a criticism level that Big Finish... It was just a dull plot to me. I, I was not gripped at all. And when I start zoning out of an audio, you've got a problem. So yeah, not a winner for me, I'm afraid. I agree. It's a two. And I really wanted to like something Carol forward because I like the character of Carol. I think she's brilliantly played in both versions. I, I really like Ingrid Hafner as an actress. I think she's played very well in the big finish. But it's just not a good enough plot. And that, I'm afraid, is the ultimate underlying problem. I'm sure it's something and, we'll come up against and, in the in the future. It's just these Series 1 episodes I really, really want to like because there's so much backstory to unpick for all these. They've got a really solid cast in all of them. They are well cast, certainly the originals. And Big Finish are doing the level best to recreate them. When they fall short, I feel a bit disingenuous, but if they bore me, they bore me. The end. Yeah, I'm the same, I'm afraid. But on that note, slightly downbeat note, we shall sign off. We'll be back next week when we're looking at episode 10, Hunt the Man Down. Until then, have a good week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye now. They'll be back. You can depend on it. Kinky Boots featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, with thanks to Studio Canal, Big Finish Productions, and Alan Hayes. Title music was performed by Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee, and the program was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com.
or find us on social media.